This is Scenic Roots. I'm Ray Bassett. Thanks for joining us. What does it take to create, implement, maintain, and refine public policy for a city the size of Chattanooga and its people? Joda Tangnapnua can tell you. He is chief policy officer for the city of Chattanooga, now six months into the job with Mayor Tim Kelly's administration. Before his current role, he served at the Community Foundation of Greater Chattanooga as its director of strategic initiatives and communications. Public policy involves data and ideas, but at any level of government, the impact begins and ends with people, their lives, and their stories. When I spoke with Joda last week, we started with his story. Joda, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell us more about your connection to Chattanooga. What brought you here? Yeah, so I actually uh, grew up here in in the Chattanooga area. My parents arrived when I was three years old, and uh, my dad immigrated from Thailand when he was young, and my parents or my mother's family immigrated from Italy. And so I like to say I have very good Thanksgiving dinners. The food is fantastic, and the kitchen was always the center of my household. But they moved out to Chattanooga to be closer to family um, when I was very young. And actually, we moved to Eastridge, Tennessee. And so I I grew up in a a working class family. My dad worked two jobs and I always remember him, you know, leaving the house at seven in the morning and coming back at nine o'clock at night. And he worked uh, at UPS and for Mike Collins and Associates and doing tough, hard work. And they worked really hard to make sure they could get ahead. and, And that's the the, the promise of uh, America was very real to them. This idea that you know, if you worked hard enough, you could climb up to the next uh, rung of the ladder uh, for opportunity. And fortunately for them, they were they were able to make it. And they've I have two younger sisters, and we're doing great. And you know, one of the things that struck me though as I got older was that for as hard as my parents worked, and you know, we were all right and and making it, and it wasn't always easy, but you know, we managed to do just fine. Uh, I I saw that. There were a lot of neighbors of mine or or friends of my parents that worked just as hard, uh, but they got left behind um, by an economy that wasn't really working for them. And so I I got really passionate about what does it take to make opportunity available to more people in in my community. And so that's that's really how I I started getting involved and why I got involved in in Chattanooga and and the civic community here in, in the city. And what attracted you to policy specifically? Yeah, it was kind of a roundabout way. So when I was actually in high school, I was involved in a a startup called Breaking News, and it was on Twitter. And we had this novel idea, or at least it was novel in 2010, to start a doing breaking news on Twitter. And then um, quickly thereafter, we realized that was something that was people were interested in. This was like in the early days of Twitter, and we grew to over a million followers. And uh, me and a couple of friends. Uh, managed to attract the attention of some major news organizations and um, eventually MSNBC acquired the company. And you know, from there, I, I got really excited about how public decisions were made. And I got to cover in that time some major decisions that were happening in Washington. We were obviously going through an economic recovery after the recession at the time. And so for me, policy was always at the root of how we created opportunity in America and why why the rules of the road were the rules. And the, it was also this process of how do we decide collectively what our community ought to look like and what were the values that underpinned them. I also began organizing when I was in college and, and then 
continued that work afterwards. Um, I remember knocking on doors out on the west side, fighting for affordable housing and and really making sure that that community was included in the prosperity that Chattanooga was starting to experience or had been experiencing for many years. And, and so I saw, I had the opportunity, thanks to a lot of really thoughtful community leaders to really get to know Chattanooga's opportunities and challenges. And so policy always seemed to be the area where people felt was at the root of why we arrived at where we're at, but never really understood, or there was a lot of opaqueness, um, or there wasn't a lot of clarity about how those policies were created or what we could do to make conditions better for our neighbors. And so that really intrigued me and I decided to pursue a degree in it and then ultimately ended up working on sort of the edges of policy at Lampos Group. And then I was thinking about how do we build a startup community and an emerging entrepreneurial ecosystem in our in our city and realized that too was connected to policy. And from there, really started to lean into urban policy for not just Chattanooga, but for mid-sized cities across the country. And for urban policy, the attraction is it's closest to people in their everyday lives. You can see the impact almost in real time. That's right. So one thing that always struck me about cities was that there wasn't really a Republican or Democratic way to pave a road or to pick up the trash. As, um, as Mayor that, LaGuardia of New York would say. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that that was really exciting is that you could pull together coalitions of people who would never want to be in the same room with each other in any other political context to pursue a common goal. And it became very clear that local policy was the the opportunity for, for Chattanooga, but for other cities to, to really come together and think about how do we bridge the gaps between the two parts of our community, the ones that have experienced a, quite a bit of prosperity and have, and, and have ready access to opportunity and those who have been left behind. Whereas that context and that conversation might be much more difficult to have at a national level. The other thing about mid-sized communities was that this was really a testing bed uh, or a, a small petri dish in which you could try lots of things and see what worked. And you could do it at a relatively low cost. And local elected officials are deeply embedded and they're very close to their community. And so you could hear instant feedback on uh, the kinds of ideas and policies that you were launching. I think a good example of that is we were toying around with the idea of really curbing predatory lending practices. So payday lenders is something I spend a lot of time on at Metro Ideas Project. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But we're, we were really thinking about like, what does it take to curb or reduce the number of payday lenders in a community because they offer a product that ultimately puts people further into poverty. And we came up with a, a wide range of policy solutions. And what I found was that certain cities were more inclined to jump at it because they had bigger problems with payday lending, but they also wanted to tweak them. And so all across the state of Tennessee, Nashville, Chattanooga, Memphis, they all passed payday lending resolutions or ordinances, but they all looked a little different. And I always thought that was fantastic that you could model policies that matched their communities and matched the challenges that those places were facing. But each of them learned different lessons. And that could be lessons for maybe the next city as they were trying to tackle those challenges in the future. So I just thought, whereas in maybe Congress or in the executive branch of federal government, or even it's the state level, where so much partisan politics had to be considered and the process was so lengthy to even begin to imagine what that change could look like. At the local level, you could turn things around much quicker and you could build much broader coalitions for that kind of change. And you made a run for office. You had an experience in 
partisan politics. What did you take from that experience and how do you think that that deepened the work that you have done since all under a nonpartisan banner? Yeah. Uh, so it, it was, uh, I always think about it as kind of a crazy decision, but it was one of the most rewarding decisions I've ever made in my life to, I, I ran for state representative in Tennessee's 30th state house district. So that covered East Lake on the farthest Western side of the district. And it moved all the way from East Ridge, uh, Missionary Ridge, East Brainerd, all the way out to Appison, uh, Tennessee. And so, or App, and, and it was sort of the further end of the county. So it included parts of the city and parts of the unincorporated bits of the county and, and also some smaller municipalities where I grew up. And one of the things about running for office is that particularly with a, a letter next to your name, I had a D next to my name and I ran as a Democrat, but it was a pretty heavily Republican district. It still is. And one of the things that I was really proud of is that we ran an ideas focused and solutions focused campaign. And uh, I was really proud of our team because we started you know, in January of that year and talked to tens of thousands of people. We knocked on over 25,000 doors. And I think what I learned in that experience was that we are a lot closer together than uh, we are further away. Um, and I know that because I would sit at people's doors when they first question almost every single door was, are you Republican? Are you Democrat? And that's how the conversation would start, but it's not how it would end. By the end of the conversation, we were talking about the shared concerns and hopes and dreams that we all individually had. And I can tell you, regardless of what party that you claim that you belong to, uh, or the ideology or political preferences that you might hold, we all go to bed at night with the same hopes and, and fears uh, for our community and our families. And I think that was always a really great starting place for a conversation about how we could make Chattanooga and and the region and our state and our country ultimately a place where all of us can get ahead. So if we take away the idea that politics is a zero-sum game where uh, in order for my side to succeed, your side has to lose, or for my family to get ahead, that your family has to, to lose. And not if, only lose, but lose badly that's and right. be humiliated. That's right. And and if, if we could get past that, we could begin building a mutual framework of policy and law and local government or net state government and ultimately a, a community that reflected the, those shared dreams and concerns. And, and we could actually begin to solve problems. It's tough to do. And I should say that I, I know it pretty well because, you know, I, I came up a little short in my uh, election. And so ultimately, uh, Representative Helton ended up winning that election. And I, uh, I'm still friendly with Representative Helton, and she and I talk um, semi-frequently to this day. And, you know, I think one of the things that we committed to in that campaign was that we were going to talk about the issues and be respectful to each other. And, and I think that that was the kind of dialogue that Chattanoogans and, and Hamilton County residents deserve, and actually all Tennesseans deserve, whenever they're thinking about politics. But, you know, we also still were uh, hitting marks that had never been seen by a Democrat in that district. We actually, I think, outperformed our gubernatorial candidate. So Carl Dean was running on the same ballot as I was. And I was also running on the same ballot as uh, Phil Bredesen, who was a two-term governor. And uh, I ran just a little bit behind uh, Phil Bredesen, a little bit ahead of Carl Dean. And I think that that demonstrated, you know, a 15-point jump in a Democrat's performance in that district. And I think that was less about party and more about people were hungry for a candidate and uh, a movement that was really focused on meeting their family where they were at and having real conversations about our community's challenges. So 
I came away changed in a, in a fundamental way, in a good way, and, and more encouraged, not less, about the possibility of, of what politics can do for people. And I think politics is often a four-letter word in a lot of households, but I, I see it as the way that we collectively make decisions about our communities. Um, and there's something really special about that. We're speaking with Joda Tangnapnua, Chief Policy Officer for the City of Chattanooga. And another thing that people are hungry for is transparency. Just circling back to your work with Metro Ideas Project, you gave a talk some years ago, transparency as a continuum. Unpack that a little bit. That's right. You 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 dug deep for that one. So I uh, yeah I had the opportunity to give a talk at Creative Mornings, and it's a fantastic group of uh, community really of, of creatives. And you get a uh, topic assigned to you every month, um, and they pick a speaker on that topic. And transparency was the one that I got, and uh, I kind of ragged on the organizer for picking me. And I was like, really, you're going to pick the guy who works in government policy to talk about transparency? Um, but you know, I did think about the idea of sausage making. And, and how people, when they say that they want transparency, what they're actually talking about is they want trust in the process. They, they want to believe that people are doing the right thing and that their intention is to do their jobs well and, and make the community a better place for everybody. And so what we end up demanding in transparency is actually kind of this very gross look at the creation of everything, even if it doesn't necessarily reflect where the end product will go. And it often biases us against the idea that government or design or public input or engagement can ever work. Because uh, as anybody who's ever tried to make a tough decision knows, the decision-making process is extremely hard and complicated. And if we're being honest with ourselves, it's really messy. Um, and it can lead you down some bad ideas before you get to the good one. And I think that whenever we talk about the value of transparency, and this is something that I'm thinking a lot about at the city, is how do we make sure that we are fulfilling our obligations to our neighbors and residents and being transparent in what we do, but also that we are creating a process where good ideas can flourish and that where we can be intellectually honest with one another about our disagreements. And um, sometimes that means having trust in one another and building that trust, which certainly comes over time. It's not sort of granted automatically, but to really work through difficult problems. And that means creating spaces where we allow people to say the messy thing, um, even if it hasn't been entirely wordsmithed or to be wrong and to be graceful in that space. So that way we can get to a better result. And, and that's really was the focus of that talk. I think it's on YouTube if, if folks want to go take a look at it. I'd, I'd have to do a refresher myself to even think about all of the points that I made in that. But I think, you know, where I came away with is that transparency is a good goal, but it's not the end result that we're, we're aiming for. What we really want is a, is a community built on trust and mutual respect where we get good ideas, um, and then we put those ideas into action. Um, and transparency is one of the tools in the toolbox to help us get there. You think about the toolbox all the time in your new role as chief policy officer of the Kelly administration, coming to city government from the Community Foundation this is a brand new position. Why is it important? And how have you been tackling it in the past six months? So one thing I will say is that I think the city has had a chief policy officer in the past, but I think we have certainly reimagined the way it, it works. Um, and when I think about my job here in this administration, first off, I think about being able to translate uh, Mayor Kelly's vision into the kinds of policies and decisions that 
advance that vision uh, of one Chattanooga that he's laid out. And I really credit Mayor Kelly with defining a real solid direction for our community where we are coming together to build a community that is candid with each other, um, where we are working toward reconciliation with each other, and we are building opportunity for every single Chattanooga where prosperity isn't just possible, but it's plentiful for all of our neighbors. And so when I think about the tough work of building policy and programs and initiatives that help us get there, one, I I think about making sure that we're adopting ideas that are rooted in evidence, that we actually take a a look at the data and allow that data to change our minds. I don't think it's a secret that I have a perspective, but I try not to let my ideology or my partisan baggage or the work that I've done in the past so lock me into what the solution has to be, but rather try to start from a place where I can look at the data and and it leads me down a path and then build policies around what that data is telling us. I also think data is not the only way way to uh, understand more about our community, but also really leaning into a process for policy creation that involves the community and doesn't just inform them of what uh, we're going to do. And so listening to people can sometimes make that data more human and give it more color and context and depth. And from our administration, you know, we've got a whole team of policy thinkers, both uh, in the mayor's office and, and departments who spend every day, one, engaging the community, two, looking at data, and then third, trying to come up with ways to get us closer to the vision that the mayor's laid out. And I think that process is is kind of like creating a, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, creating a, a playlist. Uh, you, you sort of wanted to move through some acts, and uh, I, I created a lot of playlists growing up, and you know, you don't want it to peak too soon, and you, you really want to create something that feels complete, but it's made up of individual parts. And so I think that one of the ways that we're we're really thinking about it and struggling and working through some of these policy challenges is that we are really going to be going to the community and sort of asking how should this look and and how does it best fit and tailored to your community. A great example of this is the crisis response team. So we have funded it in our budget where we are allocating dollars to hire 10 social workers and to respond to 911 calls alongside police officers at first, but it's potentially feasible that we could send social workers out by themselves to respond to certain kinds of calls where maybe a police response isn't the most appropriate or effective response to an active emergency. And some emergencies are a mental health crisis. Uh, some emergencies are things you absolutely need a police officer there for because the situation could go south really fast. But learning uh, what that crisis response team will be doing and how they're engaging residents and, and uh, managing a crisis will be something that we seek community input on. And so so we had an idea. Uh, we saw some best practices. We saw the data. We're going to be talking to the community about building it out. And then we're going to try some things. And then we'll go back and fix the things that inevitably will need improving um, and then build off of the success that we see. So I, I think that's a perfect encapsulation of how we're seeing the or how I see this role, which is is taking a vision building some ideas around it, and then moving through an iterative process to actually create really good policy that reflects what the city of Chattanooga both wants to see and also addresses the real challenges that we face as a community. And all along, you have to be responsive to events, events, events. The administration took office days after the runoff. During the pandemic, we have had now the Delta variant, a reorganization for the city, budget process and on and on and on. What's one lesson learned, you think, from you and others on the team 
looking back at the past six months? Yeah, so <laughs> you're right. I, it, you do have to respond and be responsive. I sort of liken it to like the, the job is you're thinking about long-term priorities and trying to move the ball down the field on those things, recognizing you have a limited amount of time with the time that the public has given you to do this work. But also, before you get into that, pull three chance cards from that deck and they could have anything on them and you got to respond to those as well as uh, you know try to move that ball down the field. And so those chance cards can really be anything from a, a situation with an employee to you know we're an organization with over 2,500 employees. We're one of the largest employers in the in the region. We could have uh, an active emergency in our community. I remember distinctly looking out the window and you see uh, I just saw a lot of rain and then a lot more rain and it just kept going for a while and it turns out it was like a 100 year rain uh, and we had to stop everything that we were doing to make sure that our public works crews had the resources they need and that uh, we were responding to flooding that was happening uh, in our community and at that moment policy was not the first thing on my my mind um, it was making sure that uh, we were working with the team to respond to this challenge in, in our city and I think that one of the lessons I've learned is you've heard the phrase personnel is policy. That's true. Personnel is also competency. And so having smart and dedicated public servants next to you is uh, irreplaceable. I think political leadership is essential. Uh, it gives you the will and, and confidence to go do big things. But those political leaders need um, really smart and thoughtful and responsive people alongside them. And so I have had built a tremendous amount of respect for folks way down the org chart that you never hear about in the news paper who do their jobs every day and they do them very well. A great example of this is recycling. Uh, we had to suspend our recycling because we just ran out of drivers because we didn't have a pay structure that allowed the city to be competitive. And that's something that the Chattanoogans felt in our feeling. And so whenever I think about the key lessons I've learned in, in this uh, job so far, and it's been a short period of time, I'm sure I'll learn more, it's that don't ever underestimate the value that individual employees up and down the org chart, regardless of their title, can bring to the city because over 80% of our budget, our operating budget, are salaries. And I think a lot of people criticize government for being top heavy. But when you realize that 80% of what we do is people and we deliver services, whether they be trash pickup or recycling or firefighters or police officers or the person processing your permits or folks helping you find a job or nurse navigators helping you make a decision about health care in your community, that is what a city does. And, you know, certainly it's flashier to see the parks being built or the roads being paved, but we are in the business of people and building a community, and we couldn't do it without the the staff of the city of Chattanooga that are here regardless of which mayor is in place. And so I owe a deep debt of gratitude to them, and and, and I think that the, uh, the lesson that I've learned is that they're irreplaceable in a lot of ways. All right. Joda, thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to Scenic Roots. More in a moment. This is Scenic Roots Talking Writing. Our guests, Dennis Parker and Chandra Burnett, play Andy and Melissa, two people who exchange letters from the time they are in kindergarten until they are in their 60s, in a play called Love Letters, directed by our other guest, Mary Eliza Hendricks. This is Dennis and Chandra, reading letters written when Andy and Melissa were seven. Andrew Makepeace Ladd Third accepts with pleasure the kind invitation of Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert Channing Gardner for a birthday party in honor of their daughter, Melissa, on April 19, 1937, at half past three o'clock. Dear Andy, 
Thank you for the birthday present. I have a lot of Oz books, but not the Lost Princess of Oz. What made you give me that one? Sincerely yours, Melissa. I'm answering your letter about the book. When you came into second grade with that stuck-up nurse, you looked like a lost princess. I don't believe what you wrote. I think my mother told your mother to get that book. I like the pictures <laughs> more than the words. Now let's stop writing letters. I will make my L's taller than my D's. I will close up my A's and my O's. I will try to make longer P's. Pass it on. <laughs> You're funny. Will you be my Valentine? Were you the one who sent me a Valentine saying, Will you be my Valentine? Yes, I sent it. Then I will be. Unless I have to kiss you. Ugh. When it's warmer out, can I come over and swim in your pool? No, you can't. I have a new nurse named Miss Hawthorne. She thinks you'll give me infantile paralysis. Will you help me go down and get the milk and cookies during recess? I will if you don't ask me to marry you again. I will, I will not, not write, write personal, personal notes letters in class. I will not write personal notes in class. I will not. A lot of synopsises and also reviews of this show paint Melissa in such a horrible light and it really it really makes me mad because it just needs to be a lot more equal than it is because the show is a lot more equal than those make it out to be. Can I say something? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's his show. <laughs> My feeling about this show is that it challenges the notion of what success in life means. Most people hold up career success, financial success. But this, in these synopses that you read and the reviews that Mary Elias is alluding to do, do a complete disservice to what this show is really about, which is two people trying desperately to connect with each other the best way they can. And that ultimately it's, that's, that's where the, the joy and the tragedy all reside in that, that mm -hmm. desire to do that. So it's Andy is held up as this success in so many of these things. He's an absolute mess inside. And this is one of the things that we've talked about during rehearsals quite a bit too, is that Chandra and I frighteningly relate to these characters. So to say that she relates to that complete, and she's <laughs> one of the most together people I know. She's a little intimidating, actually. <laughs> but I, I find that that Andy, I relate to him because he's he's the supposed to guy. You know, he does what he's supposed to, and and I said this to you earlier that his father's voice is in his in his head all the time, as this really strong role model that doesn't really let Andy be Andy. And Chandra can talk about this too, but if she wants to. <laughs> Melissa wants Andy to be more Andy, to, to not be so smooth and together and the supposed to guy. She wants the real Andy. Unpolished Andy. Yes, unpolished. Very good. There's a lovely <laughs> quote in the play that's that where Andy calls himself a, a diamond that is needs to be polished a and he's a little too rough. rough. A diamond in the rough. And, and Melissa says, I think you should be a little rougher. Don't let them polish you too much. Well, I think the interesting thing about this play, perhaps, after listening to what you're saying, is that while the play concentrates on the relationship between Andrew and Melissa, it's really about each of them 
in their lives. And this is just an example of how it is for them in, in every aspect of their lives. Both the hunger for connection and the inability to bring that to fruition, you know, to, to get close to somebody. Because the danger of getting close to somebody is that they know you. And both and of these characters seem to want to keep people at arm's length so they don't know them. That's definitely Melissa's issue, is she's, she had an abusive stepfather. Is that a spoiler? No, no. Well, it helps understand her, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can kind of understand why she has this certain amount of detachment. She wants intimacy with Andy, but I think she wants it on her own terms. Well, that's interesting you say that because somebody suggested of the two characters, only one really likes writing, and that's Andrew. And the reason that he likes writing is because that way he can present himself the way he wants to be seen. Right. He says that in the Mm -hmm. in the play. And Melissa fusses at him several times because of that. (laughs) Complains constantly. Right. (laughs) I hate writing letters. No more letters. Help me. (laughs) Get a phone. Yeah, constantly. <laughs> she begs him to get a phone. Well, he's not his phone. self in his letters. And then uh, neither of them are themselves in their writing. And so when they do try to to get together, they keep expecting someone else. They expect, you know, letter Melissa mm-hmm. or letter Andy. And that's not what either are, I don't know, in reality. So everything you're saying runs contrary to the notion that, as I said to you before, it's been suggested that name actors who are very busy are drawn to this play because you don't have to do very much prep, because you don't have to Mm -hmm. memorize the lines, you can just read them, you know. But that's not true, is it? If 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 you haven't done the prep and you haven't done the backstory and you don't really understand these people, you're not going to make this play come alive, are you? When I decided to do this show... I'm talking as the producer, which is a crazy thing to do, to produce a show and act in it at the same time. But well, Would you unpack that for us then? What's, <laughs> what's the difference between a producer and an actor? What does a producer well, do exactly? Just everything, all the preparation leading up to hiring the people, um, recruiting the people to, to bring the vision of the show to life. And um, I did have the good sense to... Firstly, contact uh, this young lady to my left, Chandra, to help bring Melissa to life. And then a little while later, had the good sense to bring this young, astute phenom who (laughs) recently graduated college, which you wouldn't believe, bring her on to the project. And, And it was very hard for me because it was, I felt a creative connection to it that I want, you know, there was a vision that I had for it. So we've had... Oh, numerous we, discussions about that. Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting is you're a business manager, casting director. Yeah, I mean, you could call me production manager too. I hate labels. We've talked about not mm-hmm. liking labels. That's We're, a whole separate set of responsibilities from your acting. Yes. Did Dennis does does one distract to the other? Immensely, but <laughs> hopefully not. And what I mean by when we get into rehearsal, there's there's a lot of times I fall into the rehearsal. I do... It's also one of the things that, and Chandra can speak to this, and Mary Eliza, because she's done a lot of, she's an accomplished actress herself, that you lose yourself in a character even for a little while while you're doing it. And so it's, a, it's one of the great escapes. And that's not to simplify it. It allows you to live someone else's life for a little bit, and it's it's a nice break from the harsh realities that we all deal with on a daily <laughs> basis. Well, it strikes me that maybe you get, uh, you get insights 
as a result of that into your own lives, right? <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, that's why we read, isn't it? Oh boy, how mm-hmm. yes. I tried, <laughs> I tried really hard to create a rehearsal space where we were, because the show's largely about intimacy and vulnerability between these two people. And so part of my goal as a director, in order to bring that out in both the actors and then their characters, was to create that rehearsal space among the three of us. And so I hope that that has helped And I think it has helped y'all's ability to fall into the characters and discover about the characters. It's very much like being in counseling. (laughs) We're sitting at a desk. Mary Eliza's sitting right across from us. Well, we're dissecting these characters. We're dissecting Mm -hmm. their psychology and their motivation. And to get back to what you were saying earlier about how a lot of large name actors are drawn to this because they don't have to do any work on it. Well, what we found actually... What I think is making this show and their performances so rich is that we went through every page of this show and broke down what are Melissa and Andy going through individually and together? How are they dealing with this? Why are they saying these things to each other? What do they need from each other? And why do they need it? And how do they get it? And those are some of the things that most actors will acknowledge um, make a compelling performance. And... We've been working on that for weeks, and I think that it will really help enrich the show, and it really has. When you're reading Andy's letters, you are aware of his backstory, of, of what's going on in his life. Is, and how is that represented in the letters, honestly or dishonestly? Yes. Both? They are both, because well, we've talked about it, and it's the thing of what does Andy need from Melissa? How is Andy getting that from Melissa? Does Andy need Melissa to believe he's some sort of perfect person or is Andy being truthful? And the interesting thing about their relationship is that Melissa brings about a lot more truthfulness in Andy than a lot of other people do in Andy's life. And so you get this fascinating push and pull because Andy also brings about a lot of good and support in Melissa's life that she doesn't get in real life and so it goes back and forth and we talk about when is andy presenting a fake version a mask of himself and when is andy being real with melissa and also how does that sound different in your voice how does that feel different in your body how is that presented differently on stage and how does melissa react does melissa know we think melissa knows (laughs) it was somewhat misleading to say that this is a play with two actors reading it's Absolutely. two actors acting, and, you're, and you, you are enacting the people who are writing these letters as you read their letters, yeah. right? So there's a lot more than just reading them. <laughs> Getting back to your question about the accuracy of what Andy is relaying to Melissa and to the audience, the exposition part of it, where the talking about what's going on in his life, is very accurate. And you're, it's really easy to follow along with what's going on. It jumps in time, especially we noticed that the first half of this show is childhood for the most part, up to college years, and then it's adult years, and it just, the speed of time increases greatly. But you're able to follow what's going on, how he gets to his place in the world. But to Mary Eliza's point, when you get to the feelings side for him, it's not accurate, and that's where the fun comes in. And Melissa picks on Andy. Tell uh, me more about your feelings. I know. At one point, she, she actually that. says that. That's even early on, too. Hmm. I'll tell you about my dog. <laughs> well, what about uh, what about Andy with Melissa? What is, what's Melissa getting out of this? Good question. I think it's it's similar to what Mary Eliza just said. 
some some sense of stability. She hasn't really had that in her life at all. She came from money, but money didn't hold her family together. Her family of origin ultimately dissolves. And I think, you know, Andy's been there since, you know, pretty much the beginning. Um, he also supports her artistically great, uh, um, a great deal, even when Melissa is struggling artistically. Except for the tray. Except for the tray. <laughs> what is this? Can, can I take you back a second, Chandra? Okay, yes. so you said Andy's been there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what's Andy's attitude? Is, is he paternal? Is he supportive? Is he judgmental? He, all the things at, at different parts of the show. I don't know that I would say he's paternal. One time I can call one instance when I felt that it was very paternal. Well, she, yeah, they, she says he's fraternal at one point. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that makes it difficult for her. <laughs> when she's ready to be romantic, he's not. There's this and vice versa. I, I think that happens in a lot of people's lives. Absolutely. That's why I think people can relate to this in many ways. Yeah, because it's so much more than it would appear. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, even someone who's married can have a crush. Oh, yeah. I'm, th- I'm sure Probably that happens multiple. all the time. I mean, the longer you're married, the, well, I'm not going to say that because then my wife's going to hear this and be like, what? <laughs> giving himself away yeah, already speaking yes, yes no but i think that that's i mean we all we are yeah we all can't connect with the people that we find attractive emotionally i'm you know way beyond physical this is an emotional attraction i'm sure there's a physical attraction too but it's an it's an emotional connection that uh you know, there's an opposites element to it. Too, well, you know, it's, it's, it seems to me they, they must have an incredibly powerful connection when you connect with somebody when you're so young. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know everything about them, mm. right? I mean, you know, Absolutely, yeah. Because we're, we're all naked, literally, as well as metaphorically when we're young. Yeah. Right? Because we're still figuring it out. Right. Well, Melissa even <laughs> talks about that in the show. She, there's, and they talk about in the show, how they have known each other their whole lives and they have been writing letters their whole lives and how much that impacts their relationship and how much it complicates their relationship. And there's also, and I feel like this isn't a spoiler because it's in the first line of the play, there's an interesting through line that they carry from the first line to the last scene about the lost princess of Oz it's a book that Andy gives to Melissa on her birthday in second grade. And they continue to refer to that book for the rest of their lives. They refer to their hometown as the Land of Oz. And they refer to each other's characters from the book. So it's this deep connection that's complicated. And no one else would understand and very raw and very deep. Why did you want to direct this play, Mary Eliza? Well, Dennis asked me. <laughs> and I was very excited. Um one practical Most reason would run screaming, but <laughs> <laughs> one practical reason is I just got out of college and it's really it's really flattering and humbling and so special to be offered a, a directing job right out of college. I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Also, uh, part of how Dennis presented this to me was that this is a show about two people who are later on in their lives reading about from when they were young to when they were old performed by two people um, roughly middle-aged and 
Dennis would love, and Dennis said that they wanted a person with a younger experience to direct it so that in the rehearsals and in the show, we had the um, influence of different generations since the show spans a whole generation. And I was very intrigued and I read the show. It also felt very connected to our own time right now because it's about these two people who are disconnected and are desperately trying to connect their entire lives through distance. Right now in the pandemic, we've experienced a lot of that. I felt like the show was very timely, showing these people struggling, but never giving up their fight for intimacy over a distance was very similar and related back to what we are all experiencing right now. It seems to me that the, your biggest challenge is to take something that is in some ways the most intimate act many of us ever engage in, to write to somebody else, write somebody a letter. There are no filters. Just saying exactly what you feel at that moment to somebody you trust and you think will, will, will accept it. There's a reference to this late in the first half of the show of Andy writes a love letter to love letters. He talks mm -hmm. about the unique nature that each letter has, that it's like there's no carbon copy of it. It's meant just for the receiver. There's that they can do what they want with it. They can tear it up. They can hang on to it. They can read it later, but it's not for anyone else. They can share it, but it's really about those two people. So it's the most intimate you can be with someone and not actually be in the room with them. When you get a letter from someone, and I can't remember the last time I got an actual letter from someone, it feels so good. I mean, Chandra talks about this. I don't want to put you on the spot, but she said, I don't like that Melissa complains about the letter writing because personally she feels that they truly are a wonderful thing and she would love it. It's the one part that she says I don't really. It's true. I'm, but when you get there's that remember especially when you're younger and you get a letter you know you get a letter from someone if it's a and especially someone that you have uh, an attraction to romantic or otherwise but there's just something so special <laughs> about holding that piece of paper knowing they wrote it with their hand and for you and for you only. I still have notes from my second grade boyfriend yeah <laughs> and they're little drawings yeah. it's it's very cute <laughs> mm, that's are you a letter writer Chandra you know I'm not now um growing up my grandmother wrote me a letter every week and I would write her back every week but um I've wow that's amazing really every week yeah every week do you still have them I do still have them. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. That's better than the photograph album, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She lived not far, far away, but six, seven hours away from her family. Um, my dad was her son. So she initiated it, you know, to stay connected. But, yeah, it was very special. And then, I mean, I had pen pals growing up back when it was a thing, you know, to have mm. pen pals. And, you know, and in high school when... A boyfriend was away for the summer. You know, you would look forward to receiving letters from him. What attracted you to this play? Why did you want to play this this character? Well, Dennis asked me to read the script. I don't know that there was any one thing. I feel like it's very obviously very well written. The characters are very complicated. 
I tend to do musical theater and play characters. I mean, you can obviously you can be a complicated character in musical theater, but it's just very different. So it was just very intriguing to do something that had such a a character who had such a complicated history, and then the span of time, age seven through sixty, it was very intriguing. It's definitely challenging, but I don't know that that's why I wanted to do it. I'm, I'm too tired to be challenged, Dennis. <laughs> don't worry, you'll be comfortable later. <laughs> um, do you like Melissa? Yes and no. I, I think I can identify with her to a degree, but there's a part of me, a huge part of me, I guess the part of me that is like her is like, get it together, woman. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's very frustrating. Like, why can't you get it together? You know, you've been given all this stuff. You know, why can't you get it together? You've had this amazing education. You have, you know, the financial backing. It just goes to show that sometimes that just doesn't matter. Well, I'm wondering what it's like to experience as, as an actor to play somebody who's I guess the question is, is it easier to play somebody you can easily relate to or somebody you find really difficult to relate to because they're completely different to you? That's a very good question. It is a lot of fun to play someone who is completely like your polar opposite because, you know, in everyday life, you're you're the same person, obviously. So it's fun to be someone you're not. It helps you understand humanity a little bit better. On the flip side of that, playing someone who you identify with especially in painful and difficult ways, can be very cathartic, actually. It's what I kind of meant when I said it's like therapy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm coming coming to feel, Chandra, that that all performance is to some degree therapy because I certainly have that conversation with songwriters Mm -hmm. and with writers. Well, artist therapy is... You put so much of your soul into artwork and even... Acting, some people think acting is just reciting lines, but it's it's the artwork that goes into acting is crafting the person that you're portraying on stage on top of the words. The words are a canvas. The director's job is to make sure those canvases look good together <laughs> and they work together. Well, it strikes me, too, that if, in order to interpret anything, you have to bring something of yourself to it, right? Absolutely. That's something, and that's, I think... Yes, and you have to, you only can build upon your own experiences. You cannot build from nothing. And so every character will be colored by who you are as a person. And that's why no character can be played the same way twice by two different people. Or even by the same person. Because at a different time in their life, they're going to have different experiences to build from. And so I think that's why art, acting is a very cathartic experience. It, it, can, it can be. And it's very rewarding. Yeah. Is that true, Dennis? Is it more rewarding for you now than it was when you first started doing it? Because you, you've gotten older, you've had more experience. Compared to Chandra, who's been doing it since she was a kid, I, I really only started doing stage acting five years ago. I mean, I've done stand-up comedy. Which oh, is, is, there, is there any difference? Big difference. That is oh, yeah. ultimately, that's nudity on stage. I mean, you're emotionally naked and you have nothing to hide behind at all except for your dry wit. 
<laughs> I've performed before, but this is a recent discovery. And I, I tell young people, I say, take advantage of this because I missed the train early on. I auditioned for a show, and I think I've told you this before, in my early 30s. And it was such a miserable audition as far as the way the director and the choreographer, it was Into the Woods was the show, and they took themselves so serious. <laughs> and I was so turned <laughs> off do. by that. And I said, forget this. I'm, I'm, I'm not a one. I didn't, they had two days of auditions they wanted me to come to. And I said, no, I'm done. Thanks. You guys, you really, it's called a play for a reason. <laughs> so I'm fortunate enough to have had my kids get involved with the Signal Mountain Playhouse. I got to know some of the folks in the Signal Mountain Playhouse. Yeah, we all, Chandra started there when she was young, and uh, and we just did the most recent production together, all of us. Mm -hmm. You said that stand-up is different, but it seems to me that in order to do stand-up comedy, you first have to craft a performance persona. You do, but there's no real true character. It's still you. If you're Dennis being honest, has a performance persona, don't yeah. I? Well, the, the comedy, too, is very different. There's from a pot sitting next to this kettle. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't in any way a useful prep for you? It was. The thing that it was, I remember when I got up for my first audition and Chandra was there, and I couldn't believe how comfortable, other than the singing and dancing, <laughs> but when I got to actually act the scenes, it just it felt totally correct. And I said, yeah, where has this been my whole life? My son was sitting in the amphitheater watching too, and he was just like, Dad, where has that been? And I just said, I don't know. It was a goofy role. It was the toy maker. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the toy maker (laughs) in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was played by Benny Hill. So it was a comic role, and it was over the top. So there's, I mean, for a performer, so there wasn't a lot of deep thought about it, but it, it just felt so good. So, but over, I've discovered over time that I enjoy kind of what Chandra was playing. I like playing people that are really the opposite of me, or m- mean characters, although I've played a number of mean characters the last couple of years, and I'm, I was like, I want to play a nice guy for once. So Andy's very attractive that way because he's a nice guy. Um, he's got his problems, but... He I'm can a, be nice. He's got his problems, but no, yes, he's... This is the, the challenge of being the only man in this production. Is <laughs> I'm always hearing about... The man's got his Well, okay, Andy's a very sympathetic (laughs) character, but both Andy and Melissa are deeply flawed humans. They are, and I've said that. Yeah. In his heart of hearts, he is a caring... It's funny, I find that sometimes during rehearsal, I'm occupying the headspace of Andy, and Chandra will say something about Melissa and something that Andy has done or said and how it bothers Melissa, and I find myself bothered by her being bothered. It's like, and some people call that method. It's just that I, you have a tendency to occupy an emotional space that you're in. When I I was in a rehearsal about a year and a half ago for a real jerk of a character, and I was at rehearsals, I was a crusty, you know, fellow. I mean, I, I, (laughs) in rehearsals, I was, I was living in that emotional space that I, I could turn it off, but there were elements of him that were there. Present. In one point, I barked at the director and called him a name that I can't repeat on the air because he made me mad. And I went, did I just say that? And so that's when I sort of like, wow, am I, am I actually falling away from this character when we're not rehearsing? But he knew that, and so he respected that. This is very cathartic for me, too. There's a really fine line between the persona that you develop and who you are. 
Because in order to develop the persona, you have to draw on something that's inside you already. Yes, and to be authentic, it mm. has to start. There. It really. So does. sometimes yeah. when you create a persona, you're going to be drawing on things you don't particularly like about yourself. Yeah, I mean, we're there's plenty of times in my life I've been a real jerk. I mean, I have. I can't oh, really join the club. Yeah, and when I'm playing a character that's being a jerk, it's like okay, that's easy. I can go back and find that. Or or Chandra and I did a show called Dearly Departed a few years ago, and my character was a little tightly wound. <laughs> It's a comedy surrounding a funeral. That character, he loses it physically and in especially the end of the show. And that was derived from <laughs> me physically getting so upset about something that I would lose. So it was one of the other actors said, looked at me like I had three heads. Like, how do you do that? Where does that come from? Like, you don't want to know. <laughs> They say that what's interesting about <laughs> acting is it really develops, and what I, I I think it's why we should expose more children to acting is it develops a sense of empathy, mm-hmm. and it deepens your ability to feel empathy for different mm-hmm. people because, as Dennis is talking about the idea that he's so able to put himself in different shoes and experience different types of people and different types of experiencing the world and. Actors have an extraordinary sense of empathy most of the time because they have to build that. Andrew M. Ladd III accepts with pleasure the kind invitation of Mrs. R. Ferguson Brown for a dinner in honor of her granddaughter, Melissa Gardner, before the children's charity ball. I'm writing this letter because I am scared if I called you up, I would start crying right on the phone. I am really mad at you, Andy. Don't you know when you're invited to dinner before a dance, you're supposed to dance with the person giving it at least twice? And I don't mean with my grandmother either. That's why they give dinner parties so people get danced with. I noticed you danced with Jenny Waters, but you never danced with me once. I just think it's rude. That's all. Straighten up and fly right, Andy. How do you expect to get anywhere in life if you're rude to women? Nuts to you, Andy. And that goes double on Sunday. I didn't dance with you because I've, I've got a stretched groin. If you don't know what that means, look it up sometime. I was going to tell you in person, but I got embarrassed. I stretched it playing hockey last week. The only reason I danced with Ginny Waters is she takes tiny steps. But you always make me do those big spins, and we could have gotten into serious trouble. I tried it out at home with my mother first, and it hurt like hell. That's why I didn't dance with you. I'm using a heating pad now, and maybe we can dance next week at the Junior Assemblies. I don't believe that hockey stuff. I think Jenny Waters stretched your groin, and next time you cut in, I'm going to stretch the other one. Huh? You obviously don't know what a groin is. You obviously don't know what a joke is. Dennis Parker and Chandra Burnett, reading letters written by Andy and Melissa when they were teenagers... The play Love Letters, directed by our guest Mary Eliza Hendricks, is in the Mountain Arts Community Centre on Signal Mountain this Friday and Saturday, September 24th and 25th at 7.30, and on Saturday, October 2nd at 7.30, and a matinee on Sunday, October 3rd at 2 o'clock. Details are on the Mountain Arts Community Centre website. This is Scenic Roots on listener-supported public radio in Chattanooga. I'm Ray Bassett. Thanks for listening to Scenic Roots. 
We come to you from WUTC at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Email us at scenicroots423 at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at scenicroots423. Listen to us online anytime at WUTC.org and the WUTC app. For Richard Winham and the rest of our team, join us again next time for Scenic Roots.